Hi everyone and welcome to Riskologists. This podcast is brought to you by Optimize and hosted by me, Pat Bradshaw. Optimize are thrilled to host this podcast series where we'll be speaking with some of risk management's most respected and esteemed thought leaders from across the UK and beyond. Throughout this series, we'll be exploring our guests' journey within risk management, as well as delving into their unique insights and invaluable first-hand experiences around some of the industry's most pressing topics. Our goal? To create a platform in which ideas and thoughts can be shared in order to inspire and educate our audience and to ultimately give back to the risk management community across the world. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Riskologists. As always, I'm your host Pat Bradshaw and today absolutely delighted to be joined by my mentor, my colleague, my manager and over the last year or so is a good friend. That's Paul Sutcliffe. Paul, thanks for coming on. Hiya Pat, uh, thanks for having me. No problem at all. No worries. A little bit more affectionately known as Sutty to um, friends and family. Should we go with Paul or Sutty or what should we let's, go with? Uh, let's go with Sutty. Let's keep it informal. Cool. So from your previous experience, Sutty, how is your podcast game? Have you done anything like this before? No, no, absolutely nothing. No, this is um, this is pushing me out of my comfort zone. <laughs> I never, I never thought I would be doing something like this. I've not, I've not really um, ventured into the social media platforms and yeah. all this sort of stuff. But, um, um, you know, as you've explained it to me, you know, the, the reasons why we're doing this and, um, you know, using it as a, as a platform to, you know, address some of these debatable topics and, um, to educate the audience and to try and stimulate some engagement in some of these, uh, these discussions is, is, is really valuable and I think yep. a, a, a great addition to anybody's you know learning material really so I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to to see how this how this takes off. Cool so um, as always so I think a good place to start with this is just uh, a little bit of a timeline of your career really so how you got into risk management as I mentioned a little bit of a journey to date your career leading to this very point recording this podcast so yeah fire away. Yeah sure um, I don't think my my background and my upbringing is is um, particularly new, unique. Um, I, I think growing up in a middle class sort of family, the expectations was that you you go through traditional educational routes. Um, yep. You go to school, you go to college, you go to university, you get a job, um, and you, you you develop a, a, a career. And I guess my route was 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 no different you know that was that was a type of sort of traditional route that I went through in terms of my education but what I did find was you know as I was sort of getting to the point of thinking about um, next steps beyond school where do I go what do I do it, it becomes more of a reality that actually some of the things some of the decisions that you you need to make are going to define possibly the rest of your life yeah. Um, in terms of a career, um, in terms of a profession. And to be brutally honest, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. Makes two Um, You know, school leaver. I did well at school. I did all right. Um, but didn't have a clue what I really wanted to do with my life. There was one thing that did stand out, however, was um, that I didn't want to get caught up in the rat race. Um, I didn't want to be employed for the rest of my life. Um, so I did have aspirations of setting my own business up, 
um, being my own boss, having the freedom to define and, and you know, my own path through life. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that was the only thing. I had no idea what I wanted to do in terms of setting a business up. I didn't know what, what that business would be, but that was the one thing that I do remember um, very, very clearly when I left school. That's, that's, that's one thing that I wanted to do. To do. And I, I guess that's probably why I chose the, the degrees that uh, I went for at university. It was business management, uh, BA, and uh, HND in business and finance. Pretty generic. And I guess the thinking behind that choice was that's got to give me options. Business management, why? Because I wanted to set my own business up. I wanted to manage my own business. Business and finance, you know, same sort of premise. You need to understand how the finances work. No more thinking behind it. Than exactly the same as me. I did law yeah. at uni and it was one of those things where I was, like you say, sat trying to make the decision of what to study. I was good with words. I did well at business at A level, did well with English. Um, did all right at science and law was just, I never really, to be honest, wanted to be a lawyer, but I was exactly the same as you. I was like, I could come out of a law degree, looks pretty good on your CV if you've yeah, got one. Yeah. And this is a, you know, I think a lot of people when they're, they're going through education, they, they don't necessarily have the, the guidance, um, the understanding of what's out there and certainly risk management. I mean, it was unknown to me. I'd never heard of it. Yeah. certainly wasn't a profession that I knew of when I was uh, leaving school and thinking about what I wanted to do and uh, what career path I wanted to craft for myself. So, you know, it wasn't until I'd sort of left university that, you know, the reality hit home that I'm on my own two feet here. I've got to go and earn some money. I've got to make a living doing something, but I still didn't know what I wanted to do when I left university. Um, and it just so happened that through the summer holidays while I was at university, um, I, I worked for a, a, a large multinational engineering company. Just, just you know, vacation work, data entry, working on a purchase ledger, entering details of invoices and stuff like that. It was relatively mundane, um, but it, it gave me some income. Um, and it just so happens when I left university, there was a, a job opening. I applied for it. I was known to the company um, and, and I was I was lucky enough to to land that job that was as a trainee management accountant why accounting not entirely sure it's just I, I was working for the finance department you know I say on vacation work so I knew for the few of the people the business and finance again you know there was a little bit of a link back to you know what I've been taught uh, academically but the, the, the main reason was you know it was it was an offer I was successful and it was going to help me pay the bills. So, um, and, I, and I'm sure that's the same of many people that leave university. They'll take the first job that they're offered just so they've got some income and it pays the bills. So that was me. As I got further and further into that job, I, I started sort of venturing into different strands of, of accounting. So financial accounting, started getting involved in projects at that point as well, um, particularly joint ventures and doing joint venture accounting. Um, you know, splitting the costs and splitting the profits between the joint venture partners and so on. My involvement in projects also then got me into cost accounting. So I started to understand some of the nuts and bolts and the workings of, of a business financially, yeah. as well as projects. And um, I know they say you shouldn't shoot the messenger, but every month when I was taking the financial reports to my regional finance director, I got shot every month because it wasn't pretty. It wasn't a good news story. And it got me thinking, why... You know, why, why is that? 
this organization was a, a, a pretty large scale engineering organization, uh, multinational, really good, healthy order book, profitable. But this particular division that I was working for, they were taking on some really quite large scale projects. Um, they were delivering them successfully, but the margins were so tight. <clears throat> and it was only later that it, it came to me that I realized that it was because the division was, was taking on some, some, some big projects, relatively low margin, which for an organization that has a really good um, handle on corporate governance, a really good, strong, robust internal control environment, really good at risk management, that wouldn't be too much of an issue. Unfortunately, the division I was working for weren't very good at any of those, particularly risk management. So what they were doing, they were, they were taking on these large scale projects, relatively low margin, that was just getting eroded yeah. because risks were popping up left, right and center. The unexpected was, was burning them. And I thought there's gotta be something, there's gotta be something the business should be doing, could be doing that could improve that situation. And um, I did a little bit of desktop research with the limited amount of stuff that was on the internet in those days, because I'm going back 20 odd years, you know, I mean, um, the internet, you know, in those days is not what it is today. You didn't have the wealth of information um, that's, that's available. But I did come across this thing called risk management. And when I read up about it, it was talking about how it can improve your internal control environment, it can help um, support better uh, risk informed, risk aware decisions, um, it can improve the resilience of your business. And all of that would lead to better performance, better profitability. And I was like, there's got to be something in that. How, how far post uni was this? Sorry, sorry. How long I was you... probably a couple of years into, into my role and learning how the numbers talk to you as an accountant. You know, I shan't get into the boring um, detail of it, but you start to spot patterns and trends and you understand how the, the metrics and the measures um, give you indications as to where you might be vulnerable and why. And I was looking for the solutions. And while I was doing this this desktop research to look for answers, um, purely by chance, I stumbled across an internal vacancy notice. Um, they were looking that the company was looking for somebody to go and help a small task force <coughs> develop best practice risk management and deploy it uh, across the organization globally. And I was like, wow. That seems like a really good opportunity. I knew nothing other than my desktop research about what risk management was, but I thought maybe that is the answer. So I was bold and um, applied for the job. And to my amazement, I, I was accepted. And all they were looking for really at, at that stage was somebody that had a willingness to learn, had a brain like a sponge, could remember stuff, didn't mind getting up in front of people, audiences and delivering training. And it was training around risk management. So I thought, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, no problem at all. I used to love all that stuff at university, getting up and doing presentations and all this sort of stuff and animating things. And I thought, yeah, I love all that. Fancy getting paid to do that as a, as a job. Great yeah. stuff. And having the opportunity to get flown around the world and see all these fantastic places, all expensed <laughs> to the business. I was like, fantastic, yeah. Yeah, I didn't have to twist my arm much. So that was my, um, my my real entry into sort of risk management. And 
when I joined this small team, there was there's only four of us trying to do this. Develop the policies, the procedures, um, the guidance notes, the training material, you name it. Thinking about risk management systems, just just a small team of us trying to trying to satisfy the demands of a, of a, of a large scale organisation. Um, so my baptism of fire into risk management was probably a, a sort of a, a six month period where I had to absorb as much as I possibly could. So I was taught about corporate governance. I was talk, taught about um, internal controls. I was taught about quality management systems. I was taught about risk management, um, the different tools and techniques of eliciting risks, assessing risks, quantitative risk analysis, and so on. So in a very, very short period of time, my, my knowledge went through the roof. Uh, my understanding went through the roof. And that prepared me well for getting on a plane, touring around um, lots and lots of different countries, training people from senior executives right down to people on the front line, what risk management was, just basically the core principles, really, the basics, the fundamentals. <clears throat> and one, one of the things, the key, the key elements of that um, initiative, if you like, was very, very clear. It was about changing the hearts and minds of the people. It was about educating people. It was about giving them the tools and techniques, arming them with what they needed to be thinking more intelligently about the threats and the opportunities that they faced and what those meant to the business, the projects that they were uh, delivering and how that could affect the performance of the business, the profitability of the business, the resilience of the business, decision making and so on. So you can have the best processes, the best policies, et cetera, et cetera, the best systems. But at the end of the day, it's all about the people the people that are engaged in that process. People make the judgments, people make the decisions, but it's all based on best available information. We needed to make sure that people knew how to go and get that information and how to contextualize it and and put it in terms that would help them make better decisions and not be afraid of going into a situation, a high-risk situation, but on the understanding that you know how to manage the risk and therefore maximize the potential of getting the reward, you know, that, that profitability. So that, that was sort of how I got into it. I didn't plan to get into risk management. I did, as many, many professionals will, will suggest, you know, they sort of fell into the profession for, 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 for lots of different reasons. And, and that was the reason how I got into it. From that point onwards, you know, my, 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 my career in risk management took off. And, and, and since then, you know, I've held lots of different roles. I've been an internal auditor because... I was taught the basic principles about what corporate governance is all about, what internal controls are all about, um, about what quality management systems are all about. I've been a risk management consultant. Um, I've held various roles as risk manager, risk specialist, analyst, all these sorts of titles that we put around. But it's all been, every single role has been focused on the basic fundamental principles of risk management. Yeah. Um, it's just different applications in different contexts. So as we say, risk management is risk management is risk management. So that's, a, that's, you know, that's quite a bit about how I sort of got into it. But um, I think it's important that, you know, people that are starting their career or looking for a career, they didn't, perhaps don't really know what they want to do. Risk management is inherent in everything that a business does. You know, it's, it's, it is integral to everything that a business does. So, yeah. Even if you want to go into, you know, a particular profession, discipline, you've really got to know 
about risk management is going to help you, is going to serve you well. So I would encourage anybody, where, irrespective of where they are, what they do, what discipline, what career path they're looking at, to think about you know, brushing up on risk management. Um, it'll really serve them well. Yeah, I, I love this part of the podcast because, as you mentioned, most of the guests tend to have quite a convoluted background when it comes to risk management. I've probably quite wrongly a, f- a couple of times sat there and been like, God, I wish I'd just done risk management at uni and I would, would have just had a clear path in. But I think my journey in like recruitment and sales, traveling, retail, loads of other jobs, uh, well, not loads, but quite a few other jobs when I was traveling, I think it set me up perfectly. I think without that stuff, I wouldn't have been able to be able to build on those foundations to be a good risk professional. I think it's good to get exposed to the difficulties, the challenges that different organizations face. And then, as I say, I had an epiphany. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I can see the challenges, I can see the problems, there's got to be a solution. Other organizations can overcome these. What are, what are they doing? Um, and that was it, you know, you have those light bulb moments. Yeah. And for me, it was risk management. It doesn't matter if, 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 if it was a planned uh, or unplanned, um, you know, conscious or unconscious decision to get into it. I think everybody should know a little bit about it. It's a valuable tool. Yeah. Something that you should really have in your arsenal. But things have moved. It, it, it is considered a profession now. You know, there are degrees, there are master's degrees in risk management. None of that was around when I was, when I was a lad. <laughs> you know, when I was starting my career, thinking about what I was going to do with my life. I didn't have those options. Those weren't presented to me. You yeah. know? So I can well imagine that, you know, those that have perhaps got a little bit more gray hair, um have you know perhaps a lot of them have stumbled into it because we didn't have those opportunities that you know school leavers have today out of all the guests i've spoken to so far i think only one exclusively did risk management from uni and progressed through which was interesting um just before we move into the topic sorry i think obviously we've touched on all the stuff you've done previously i think it'd be good to do do a little bit on what you're doing at the moment and the formation of of optimize with uh, with the other partners yeah so um (laughs) I mentioned that the, you know the, the the only thing that I had clarity on when I left school was that I wanted to be a my own boss. Yeah, and I did set a timeline on it. Um, I set a from from leaving university. Um, I thought I, I I wasn't that bold or arrogant or perhaps confident enough to think that I would be capable of starting my own business up within the first few years of leaving university because I just really didn't know what that business was going to be. Yeah. And it was only until, you know, a few years into my career that I'd stumbled across risk management. I got to understand it and I got a passion for it. You know, I would got a few years of experience under my belt that I thought, Do you know what? Yeah, I'm ready. I think this is something that um, is worthy of setting a business up to deliver. And, and that was when I sort of started to define the paths of independence and um, <clears throat> my 10 year plan was to become an independent risk management consultant and I achieved that and I did it's just me one man band as, as lots of people do you know they set up their own limited company and I set up PGS professional services limited and it was it was it was me doing what I do best that led into a lot of contracting work, um, working on projects and so on. And it got me into um, some quite challenging um, industries, highly regulated industries, where risk management was absolutely critical. Um, it needed to be done well. 
and it needed to be done well in projects, programs, portfolios, and enterprise level. Yep. And so it exposed me to challenges in client organizations and contracting organizations. Once I got that under my belt and I got that experience, I thought there's, there's something more to do. I hadn't really planned what, what my career was going to look like after I was, went independent. And I thought, I need to scale up. Yeah, I can't address all the challenges. I can't do everything that I can see that there's a huge demand out there. Yeah. But what I, what I, what I came to realize very quickly was that there weren't actually that many risk professionals out there to help these organizations. And I thought, need some way of scaling up. And it's a couple of, well, I'm probably going about three or four years ago now. We, you know, I'd been working with um, what are now the optimized partners. We'd, we'd cross paths, we were working together. Um, and we kept bumping into each other. You know, somebody would go off for a couple of years, work with a different client and they'd come back again and so on and so forth. And um, we sort of had a, a, an affinity for for doing things in a particular way. And, and we had our very similar soapboxes that we used to get on. And we got our heads together and said, you know what, I think we're all on the sort of similar pages. Why don't we, you know, it wasn't me that came up with the idea. It was Matt, Matt Livingston said, you know, why, why don't we join forces? Yeah and create something good, create something that we, we can um, build to to change the industry for the better, um, to, to provide the capability, the capacity within the risk management profession to go and help these organizations do better. Um, and, and that's sort of where Optimize was, that was when it was conceived really, and, and, and we, we, we set the business up a couple of years ago. And, and that's very much what we're all about, is, is about trying to, improve the profession for the better going forward and, and as i alluded to before it's all about the people so optimizes very much about developing the next generation of risk professionals you know those are the two things that we're very very passionate about is you know changing things for the better I and mean, how do we do that we do it through the people we, we we put people out there that are good competent well-educated experienced risk professionals out into the market to go and help uh, organizations in the future do better be more successful and i'm very glad that you did because that was the uh, <laughs> I, I don't think i'm not sure i've ever made my way into risk management if you hadn't roll the dice to to hire someone green i was the first employee optimize and um really really happy that you did otherwise i may, may never have been sat here doing this podcast so just to jump straight into it then cheers for that sutty as everyone will probably will have noticed from the title we're going to be discussing the distinguishment between the risk owner versus the risk carrier. Now, I think it would be good, Sooty, firstly, if you could just offer us a bit of an explanation or a definition, I guess, of the terms risk owner and risk carrier, and then maybe just go through the key distinguishing features of both. Yeah, sure. Well, let's start with the easy one, which is risk owner. I don't think my interpretation will be any different to anybody else's. I think if, if you were to ask 10 risk professionals... What's the definition of a risk owner? I, I don't think you're going to get a huge variance in the answer. I think what you'll get is probably a typical boilerplate type of response, which will be something on the lines of the risk owner is the best placed person to manage a risk. Yep. Yeah, there's going to be uh, that type of um, understanding of what a risk owner is and what they do. They've got the the requisite understanding, experience, skills, knowledge, etc., etc., qualifications to 
I guess, in, interpret, to understand what that risk is all about, to analyse it, uh, to evaluate it effectively and to come up with um, the solution, the answer to the problem. They may not necessarily take all the actions, but they they are the, the architect, if you like, and they will coordinate the management of that risk going forward. So we might have lots of different action owners working for and on behalf of the risk owner, but it's the risk owner that is, is ultimately responsible for the successful management of a particular risk. I don't think that, you know, I don't think that's going to be any shock to, to anybody yeah. that's listening, you know, that um, has, has come across the term. I think the other term, risk carrier, might be something that um, very few have perhaps come across. Risk carrier is a term that I was introduced to um, right from the beginning of my education in risk management, um, so 20 odd years ago. I didn't know any different. I was surprised that when I got out into the big wide world that people didn't use the, car- you know, the word risk carrier. It wasn't being used in the profession, I guess, it, it, like risk owner was. Everybody knew what risk owner was, but when I used the term risk carrier, I was like, what do you mean by that? And I'll be perfectly honest, I don't actually know what the real definition of risk carrier is. I've just interpreted what risk carrier means to me and what it meant in context of the organization I was working for, where I was taught about the principle. So let's get into it. What is it? What is risk carrier? Well, if you think about the term carrier, my interpretation is it's who carries the can. If you're the risk carrier, um, the book stops with you. You carry the can. You face the consequences. Um, if we talk, if we put that into sort of legalese and contractual speak, it's who's liable for the consequences, for the impact, the cost and time implications, should a risk materialize, who carries the can. Yeah. So I don't know for certain, but I think it's a fair assumption that that's how the term was born. That's where it came from, particularly given that I was taught about this concept of risk carrier when I was employed by a commercial contracting organization that needed to very clearly define the level of risk that they were carrying under a contract and what they were not carrying under the contract because that would then help them in later discussions in delivering a project when perhaps something unexpected occurred and you had to have that difficult conversation with your client where you're asking for compensation. You yeah. say, well, I didn't see that risk coming. Clearly, it's not something that was within my control. Um, there's nothing explicit in the contract that says that, you know, it's, it's, it's my problem. Therefore, I think it's something that we're entitled to compensation for. Um, in essence, what we're saying is it's the client is the, is the risk carrier. So it's very important that when you get into these contracts that you have that absolute clarity of the level of liability that you're accepting. And I think, you know, when I relate that back to me getting shot as the messenger every month, this sort of resonated with me. It was like, right, got it. Yeah, yeah. We're carrying too much risk under these contracts. We've taken on too much. Whether we've done it knowingly or inadvertently, um, don't know. Yeah. But that was what, that was sort of, how it then gelled in my mind was right get it now all the pieces are starting to fall into place um the division i was previously working for was taking on a level of risk knowingly or unknowingly that was actually eroding the margin they were liable 
for more stuff than they were expecting and it was eroding the profit margin so that landed very well with me as i can see how just that understanding that basic principle of um, understanding a risk carrier could could help so i mentioned it sort of briefly then about you know contracts i was working for a contracting organization they delivered projects under a contract with a client so if we think about what what is a contract what does it do for us um, I think of it in two ways. Firstly, it defines the um, very clearly what the obligations are of each party. So we, we enter into contract because we're going to do something in return for something. So the contractor is going to build a facility, design and build a facility for a client um, in return for being compensated, being remunerated for that month, you know, in, normally you know, you're talking about money the second element of a contract for me is about allocation of risk so the terms in the contract are there to try and assign or apportion uh, levels of risk on each of the parties involved in the contract so the contractor will be liable for certain risks and the employer will be liable for certain risks and it's important that you get that absolute clarity otherwise you don't know the level of risk you're really taking on and therefore, what you expect to get out of the, the contracts might not transpire. Yeah. So let's just translate that. So, you know, those two elements, there's an obligation to do something in return for, for some sort of reward. And there's the understanding of the, the liability, the level of risk you're taking under a contract. That sort of reconciles quite well to the definition of a risk owner. You know, you've got a duty to do something. Um, I've got a duty to to own a risk, do something, manage it, reduce the, the likelihood of uh, and the potential impact of a threat and, and the converse of an opportunity. And then you've also got to think about the liability, the level of risk you're actually carrying under the contract. Yeah. Because if you carry too much risk, commercially, financially, it doesn't become, you know, it, it affects the viability of that contract. And commercial contracting organisations need to make money. They're in it to make money. Take on too much risk unwittingly, you're not going to make as much money. So that for me is where sort of the, the term risk carriers come from. It's a, it's, it's a commercially contractually motivated thing yeah. to provide that uh, distinguishment between an obligation to do something under a contract to manage a risk versus a contractual liability who carries the risk should yeah. it materialize. So that's where I think it's come from. That's how it was defined in the organization I worked for when I was taught the, the principle of it where they got it from i'm not entirely sure i don't know if it was an internal development or i certainly know that the material that was developed for the training um there was consultants that were brought in so i suspect it may have come from you know an external party yeah certainly when i've spoken to some consultants in, in you know that are still operational in the industry today i talk about risk carry and they go yeah yeah we know about that right Oh wow, yeah. Because the majority of my clients have never heard of it. <laughs> I was gonna, that <laughs> Do you was, know what I mean? That was um, going to be, um, yeah. That was, you, I was going to investigate that because outside of sort of the internal learning material and stuff that I've used with Optimize, um, I've certainly not come across the word risk carrier in, in any recognised literature or or even just any of the research that I've done. I've spoken to anyone. Have you? Okay, so risk carrier is something that isn't necessarily recognised. Have you spoken to clients where? 
they've used a different term for it or how have you found that clients are currently underlining that or discussing that even yeah i think that i'm picking up on two things there pat in that it's that clear definition um even if we, even if you go back and look at risk owner that everybody you know I'm assuming everybody's got a very very similar understanding of what a risk owner is but actually if you pick up the majority of risk management guides and standards and look for the term in the glossary of terms it wouldn't surprise me if you can't find the term risk owner really so even though we've got a very very good and consistent understanding of risk owner even that is not very well defined but through application we've grown to understand that risk you know what a risk owner is and what they do what the role and responsibilities of a risk owner is and it's very consistent across the profession uh, and, and different industries risk carry on the other hand is even less documented and defined um, and so when i use the, the the term it's alien to most organizations most clients that i deal with so i tend to use different words that perhaps they understand a little bit better yeah so if you think about um going back to you know a, a contract that you know there's obligations to do something in return you know for some sort of reward uh, and then there's the the um allocation of risks from a contractual liability perspective how do we typically cover liability well there's a few things we can do you can transfer that that liability onto somebody else yeah take out insurance common transfer strategy you know these low probability potentially high impact risks will transfer them we'll transfer them by taking out an insurance policy where we pay a premium every year um, for somebody else to carry that risk if it materializes you go and call down on your, your your insurance policy and the insurers pay out that's one way of covering the liability the other way is you evaluate a pot of money and time yeah, cost contingency time risk allowance to cover the cost and time impact of a risk should it materialize so typically we'll just call that contingency pot of money and a pot of time to dig us out of a hole if a risk were to materialize yeah so most clients most organizations most contracting organizations are familiar with the term contingency they know what it means they've got an understanding of it so often i'll replace the term risk carrier for contingency owner yeah for want of a better word that seems to gel quite well with with most organizations so you've got the risk owner best place person to manage the risk and you've got the contingency owner the the party that holds the purse strings or has got a lump of time if the contingency owner is the client then the contractor will be looking to demonstrate entitlement to draw down on that contingency. Yeah. Yeah. So there's basically what we're saying is under the contract, the contractor is not liable for that risk should it occur. And as such has entitlement to be compensated by the, the client, the employer, um, should that risk materialize and result in some cost or time impact. Um, and it's a drawdown on the employer's or the client's contingency. So that seems to gel a lot better with people when I'm talking about the concept of risk carrier. But it's very important to, to make that distinguishment because 
as I say, it's it's all about the people. It's about the behaviours, and you can get. You know, I've worked with organisations, with contracting organisations, where they've been quite adversarial, and the attitude has been, well, if that risk happens, I just get compensated after the client. You know, it's I don't really care about that. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, under the contract, you're not liable for it, but at the end of the day, you're accountable for delivering a project to cost time and quality. What happens if the client doesn't have the money or the time to give you, to compensate you? They've got to go and find it from somewhere. They're contractually um, liable for it, so they've got to do something. But if they've not made provision for it, if they don't have the contingency, that's going to be even more detrimental to delivering the project. So that type of attitude of, oh, I just raised a compensation event on the client without actually understanding if the client knows about that particular risk and has made provisions for it and protected you against it. Yeah. That's not helpful for anybody. That's not good management. It's not good project management. It's not good risk management. It's not good commercial management because you're jeopardizing the success of the project and you're going to get yourself into an argument with the client when it comes down to affordability. We have these discussions, but fundamentally it comes back to you know the, the, the two main terms that I'm talking about, which is risk owner managing the risk and risk carrier having that level of protection in some way shape or form whether it's by transfer to an insurance company or whether it's by internal insurance if you like by creating contingency yeah i find it quite surprising that if this is a concept that you've discovered at the beginning of your journey that the term hasn't evolved or made its way into literature yet is it is it surprising for you it is yeah, I'm very, very surprised that it isn't explicitly defined somewhere. Um, because when you think about, particularly, you know, in, in, in the areas that I've majored in for the last sort of 15 years, which is major and mega projects um, in some quite highly regulated industries, the challenges of delivering certain projects are significant. The level of risk is significant. It does shock me Yeah, that we don't have absolute clarity that drives some of these conversations um, because it is massively important it only takes you know you're only as good as the weakest link and if that weak link is in respect of who's managing risk yeah we've got a problem so you need to make sure that the risk ownership is is correct every risk that we identify has got appropriate ownership the future is uncertain and therefore you can't guarantee that even with the most robust risk management process and the most appropriate risk ownership, that you're not going to get bitten. Something isn't going to come left field yeah. unexpectedly and, and derail your project. So it's massively important that we think about the consequences of a risk and have we got an appropriate level of protection in whatever form that comes and we have absolute clarity on who is carrying that liability or who yeah. is responsible for that contingency so that you've got the confidence, you've got the level of protection and you've got the confidence that whoever the allocated party is, he's going to use that effectively, constructively for the benefit of delivering a project. Absolutely imperative. Yeah. And it doesn't surprise me that the stats about project failure are where they are. It was it's shocking, isn't it? It's when I did the, uh, the podcast with Deepak and, and Richard, 
I think we I was doing some preparation in in, um, in regards to that episode, and the numbers are just. Is it something like ninety eight percent of projects fail to deliver to cost, time, and yeah. benefit? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I I read it on the flip side, so it was like two percent yeah. of projects are successful. Yeah. I was like, that can't be right, and then it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's it is, and and it's as phenomenal. I say, you know, I think if you've got the you know you you set yourself up for the right management and the right protection that's going to inform a position that you can be confident in yeah or more confident than i think projects have at the moment and and, and evidently from the stats have in the past because that's quite woeful isn't it you know yeah <laughs> that sort of performance exactly so, so we've touched on theory then sort of in terms of distinguishing between the two in terms of application and you using the terms in practice can you think of any typical uh, typical examples from your experience where the distinguishment between these has been really crucial yeah gosh how long have we got (laughs) it has so i'm very much a believer that once you understand the basic principles you can apply them in lots of different contexts and i think that's core to risk management you know in its most generic form in that Risk management is risk management is risk management. If you understand the basic principles you've been taught, you know, uh, risk management 101 from, you know, taught from first principles, then you can apply process, the tools, the techniques, etc. in any context. Um, and, and I have genuinely had the opportunity, fortunate enough to have the opportunity to, to have applied risk management in lots of different contexts. So I do stand by that very strongly and therefore... The same goes for this, that understanding, that distinguishment between risk owner and risk carrier um, is absolutely fundamental. And this is why it it shocks me that perhaps a lot of risk professionals may be thinking about it, but perhaps don't have the the clarity. They're not in that mindset where um, they've been taught these principles from day one, whereas I was fortunate that I was. So... That helps me in lots of different situations where I can use those principles, that thinking, that distinguishment, and apply it in different contexts where I'm, you know, I'm in a bit of a challenging situation. Um, so I'll give you some examples. So if you think about why do we do risk management, it's to add value, it's to protect value. Um, that's the core of, of, of why we do risk management. We accept a level of risk because we expect some level of reward. We enter into contracts because it will come with an element of risk and liability, but we expect some reward, some profitability at the back of it. As I mentioned before, you've, you've got those two sort of key elements that, that risk owner and risk carrier focus in on, effective management and effective protection. So the way in which I think about risk management and I go about my elicitation in terms of um, you know, helping clients to identify and assess risk. I look at it in two different ways, two different contexts, two different lenses. So the first is about planning for success. Yeah, we must plan for success. And it's a bit cheesy, a bit cliche, but I was taught all this when I was going through my training many moons ago. It's not about what could go wrong. It's about what has to go right. Yeah. yeah? And all and using those terms, it does sound a bit, a bit cheesy, doesn't it? But there was there's some reason as to why we were using those sorts of terms when I was going training people was because we were trying to change people's perception of what risk is. It's not a bad thing. 
Um, and if you don't take a level of risk, you're not going to get any reward. Yeah. Risk and reward are inextricably linked. Um, entrepreneurs take an inordinate amount of risk because they can see the benefit, they can see the future reward. They've got it clear. They know exactly what they're doing, where they're going for. So very, very um, successful entrepreneurs. They've got a big appetite for risk. They're willing to take on a lot of risk, but they've also got to be really good at managing it <laughs> in order to secure those benefits and, and deliver those objectives and get that reward and the benefit in the future. Planning for success is all about, for me, understanding where you want to get to. What does success look like? And there's going to be some measure of it. There's going to be uh, a profit margin. There's going to be um, a date that you've got to deliver something by. It's got to function in a particular way. It's got to perform. There'll be performance parameters that you've got to meet, etc., etc. And I think that's true of any sort of project. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the good old project manager's trilemma. They've got to deliver to cost, time, and quality. And by quality, it's you know satisfying the requirements, um, delivering the functionality that the client requires for whatever it is you're delivering you know, to, to offer that, that benefit to the client, that business benefit. So planning for success is, is sort of really, really critical element of, of risk management and where we fit in as risk professionals because we're trying to preempt, we're trying to look into the future and think about what could throw you off course. Yeah. What are the threats? What are the opportunities um, that could cause us to deviate from our plan that could affect our objectives? How does that manifest itself as a result of what we do as risk professionals? Well, we're thinking about those uncertainties, those things that, that really matter, those uncertain events that really matter and how they can impact the objectives. And if it's got a material impact, we'll prioritize them. We'll do something about it. We put actions, um, mitigating actions into our base plan we, we, we make appropriate allowances for um, cost and time required to undertake those proactive risk management activities. Yeah. And all of that <clears throat> is intended to deliver success. So that fundamentally is, you know, I guess at the core of risk management, why we do what we do. Let's think about the risk carrier element then. Um, you know, so what I've just talked about there is about good, effective, proactive risk management planning for success that's about the risk owners isn't it you know yeah. as to what the risk owners do let's think about the risk carrier element for me that's all about the second lens if you like is um what if these risks materialize how do we recover from it so it's about planning for recovery you've got to plan for success but you've also got to plan for recovery because the future is uncertain things very rarely go to plan as we've alluded to you know 98 percent of projects fail to deliver to costs <laughs> but that's 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 why projects exist isn't it you know to deliver to cost time i know 98 percent of them fail to do what they're intended to deli deliver phenomenal um for me i think a lot of it is to do with that failure to plan for recovery so i think we're quite mature in terms of a profession in planning for success i think we've got that down to quite a good you know level of maturity where it's applied very, very well, um, planning for success. But planning for recovery tends to be, a, a, for me, what I've witnessed is a bit of an afterthought. Yeah. And some of it is driven, as I mentioned before, about attitudes and behaviours. Ah, it's the client's risk. I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> if it happens, I just poof, spank them for some more money and time. That's no problem. I get a compensation event. Why do I need to worry about how we dig ourselves out of that proverbial hole? Yeah. 
not my problem. So you put nothing in place. You don't plan to try and recover from that situation. And the expectation is that the client's going to do it because they carry the risk. Hang about, why, why, why is a delivery organization contracted to deliver a project because you're project delivery professionals? You're a project delivery organization. You do it well. The client would do it themselves if they had the in-house capability. Yeah. You're there for a reason to deliver the project. But you can't deliver it in isolation or just narrowing your field of vision to the risks that you're liable for under contract. Because if anybody else fails, you fail, the project fails, the client fails. Yeah. So is it surprising to me that 98% of projects fail? No, not really. <laughs> it's not. Shocking. And as risk professionals, we're trying um, very, very hard to try and improve practices, to um, try and um, better the chances of projects succeeding. And planning for recovery, I think, is an area that we need to focus in on more as risk professionals. Forget the contract for one second. Forget who's liable for it. If it's about delivering the project... If it's about the project manager discharging their accountability to deliver the project successfully to cost, time, and quality, they can't do that if you're only focusing on your own stuff. Yep. Projects don't exist in isolation. They're not delivered in a bubble. Loads of external influences that perhaps the contracting organization, the project manager is not in control of. Maybe that the client is in control of some of it or the client is in, can, can, can influence some of that external stuff. But that external environment, external to project environment, for me, is where most of the risk comes from. Yeah. We're very good at managing our own patch. It's all the other stuff that tends to come at us left field because we've we've either not bothered to look at it because it's somebody else's problem, or even if we have looked at it and we have understood the problem, we haven't bothered to think about the solution because it's somebody else's problem under the contract. It's somebody else's liability. They'll sort it out. That just leads to failure. It will only ever lead to, fa lead to failure. So you can't have one without the other. You can't have planning for success, i.e. doing the proactive stuff, if you don't also plan for recovery because part of a successful delivered project is being able to adapt, to change, to recover from things that um, impact you adversely. Yeah? It's, it's, it's how quickly, how agile the project is to get back on its feet and carry on delivering. Yeah. So you've got to have both pieces of the puzzle. Planning for success in terms of planning proactively for risk management to manage the risks, but also planning for recovery um, if the risk should materialise. How do we get back on our feet and recover from that situation in the most expedient and cost-effective manner? Yeah. Irrespective of who's liable for that risk. Yeah. Irrespective of who makes the decisions, who calls the shots. So risk to the project, it needs to be managed, needs to be considered in terms of how we recover from that. So risk ownership and risk carrier has helped me very, very well. That just basic understanding and principle has helped me well to articulate to clients. You need to think about these two constituent parts because success doesn't come unless you think about each of those two elements. Yeah. And I think a lot. what I've found is a lot of risk practitioners are very, very good, as I say, in, in the um, helping clients define the proactive stuff 
getting into the plan and demonstrating that we're genuinely planning for success. Yeah, there's a full reconciliation of all the mitigating actions in a risk register. There's a list of all the activities in the plan, fully costed and resourced. So we are planning for success. We've got enough money and time to pay for what we need to do to secure success. Great. And then they draw a line. Yeah. And forget about all the rest of it. That's where I think projects get bitten. Not being able to um, respond to change or recover quickly enough. Um, so that concept has really, really helped me to instill that thinking within my clients to to really hone in on that. And I'll give you a very good example on a recent project I was supporting. The client was responsible for securing a supply chain for some specialist equipment that you couldn't reasonably expect the contract to go, to go and procure. You know, this was the, the client's specialist area of expertise. Um, they were best placed to define what the requirements were, to select the suppliers and to put in place the commercial arrangements to offer surety in terms of that supply long term for the, for the benefit of the client. So in essence, the contractor came along and said, what do we do about this requirement? And the client said, well, don't worry about that. We're setting up our category management procurements and we'll put all the commercial arrangements in place so that you can leverage that. Yeah. So you'll basically be procuring through our supply chain for and on behalf of, you know, of us. Um, don't worry about that. And the contractor said, well, I'm worried about it. Because <laughs> what if you don't deliver that contract and give us, you know, the right means by which to leverage that? in the timeframes that we require to deliver the project. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, says the client. Anyway, the contractor had raised the risk on the client and said, no, no, there's, there's a risk that the client doesn't get this these commercial arrangements in place in time. What do we do about it? Well, there's a couple of choices. When you get to the realisation, that point of realisation, that actually the client hasn't been able to put those arrangements in place and you can kick your feet up and send everybody home cabin everybody up and just pay people under a compensation event for doing absolutely bugger all that's one thing you could do <laughs> yeah yeah and say to the client well i did i did tell you yeah but in my world i told you so it was count for nothing it's a bit of bad behavior that yeah, i told you so that doesn't help that's going to cause your project to fail so just you know, abdicating responsibility and saying, yeah, but under the contract, you're liable for it, Mr. Client. You know, under the standard compensation clause, the, the, the client has failed to deliver something in the time in which they said they were going to deliver it. Compensation event, dead clear under the contract. That's not helping anybody at all. Yeah. Or what you could do is you could take responsibility and define your own destiny and think about what if that risk were to occur what could we as a project reasonably do? There's a couple of things that the project looked at. They knew that there was different routes to the same solution. Yeah, There was one that the client was going down, which was their preferred route, because that was going to establish their supply chain and surety of supply for a long time through a category management type approach to um, procurement. So they weren't just doing it for this individual project. They were doing it, you know, for all future projects yeah. so there was always going to be the risk that that takes a little bit longer to set that type of framework in place and it could be at the detriment of this individual project and the project recognized that that could be a reality 
So they said, well, okay, um, I know you're best placed as the client to be putting this supply chain in place and putting all the contractual arrangements in place, but we can't wait for you if you can't get it done in the timeframes that we're looking at. So the project's geared up and they actually produced two sets of commercial documents. One that was suited to the type of framework contract that the client was trying to establish under the category management approach. Yeah. And one which would allow the contractor to go direct. The client had already selected who the, who the supplier was. You know, so we knew at that point the selection was already made. The contracts were being, you know, awarded and it was, you know, at that point, they sort of knew that when we need this kit, we're going to have confidence who it is we need to be contracting with, who's going to supply the stuff. Yeah. So, well, let's let's create a different pack, commercial pack, that would allow us to contract directly, not through this category management long-term framework that the client's setting up. So that's what they did. It was the client's risk. It was a dependency on the client. Under yeah. the contract, dead clear, client's liability. You fail to deliver that route to market when we need it. On your head, be it your liability, you will compensate us. But the project was proactive, intelligent about thinking about that situation. So we can't tolerate that sort of delay. Let's do something about it. It was actually in their gift to do something about it. So as it turned, as it transpired, the client wasn't ready, but the project was. Yeah, their project was ready to respond to that situation. And as soon as the client said, sorry, guys, we're not ready. The project went, no problem. Boom. Wow. Commercial pack out the door. And they contracted directly with this supplier and the project didn't suffer so thinking about risk carrier is great from a liability perspective but the detriment of getting your head in that space of thinking about liability and commercials and contracts is it can be at the detriment of good risk management good project management good commercial management and so on so you've got to be dead careful the two planning for success and planning for recovery they go hand in hand. You've got to think about those two elements um, and think about them intelligently and, and often put that contract to one side. So for me, that's sort of one area where it's really, really helped me. It's helped projects. That's just one example of where it's been very successful, where we've we've really planned to recover from a potential risk impact. And even though it's, it's, it's clearly not the, the, the contractor's liability. Perfect. Thanks for that, Sotty. So, Obviously, from the examples that you've given, distinguishing between the risk owner and the risk carrier is obviously very important. In your previous experience, have you found that the word risk owner has been substituted for risk carrier or there's ever any misuse around that or the interchange of those words has caused confusion and and how you've remedied that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The fact that, as I say, risk carrier doesn't seem to be a very well-documented term um certainly in my experience people have not come across it it's not part of their normal day-to-day vocabulary yeah people tend to use other words and it can get a little bit confusing and 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 they will often pick on owner as 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 the substitute and and it can cause a hell of a lot of confusion so only very recently i was supporting a client and they'd already got the contracting organization under a framework type agreement and they were looking to engage um engage them to deliver a new project yeah this particular project was going to be delivered um, not under a reimbursable basis um but under i guess a target cost type mechanism where the contractor was having to take on an element of risk under the contract 
they were going to set a target and if they didn't hit the target they would suffer some pain and if they did hit the target or they exceeded the target they bettered that target they would get some gain so it's a pain gain type of uh, mechanism yeah risk and reward there we go <laughs> um and i was engaged in some of the conversations about certain risks you know that they already developed the risk register and, and and i sort of joined the party a little bit way down the line and and there was lots of heated discussions around who the owner was and and i was like oh god here we go again right and the sorts of words that the the contractor was using was oh that's a client-owned risk <coughs> And the client was saying, no, 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 it's not. And the contractor said, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. If this were to happen, surely we'd be entitled to compensation. And the client was saying, well, yeah, yeah, under the contract, yeah, it is. But no, 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 but, but you need to manage it. And the contract's going, well, yeah, I didn't say I wasn't going to manage it. Well, you did because you're saying it's, we're the owner. And isn't the owner the person that's going to manage it? Uh... Yeah, but I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> I'm certain there'll be a lot of risk professionals no, listening to this who've been in that situation. I was, I was, I was situation. listening to this thinking, oh, God, right, okay, we need some clarity here. Yeah. So I went straight back to the basic principle, right? Can I just stop the conversation, please? I just need to interject here. Can I just explain the concepts of and the distinguishment between risk owner and risk carrier? And what I mean by that is there's certain parties that are better placed to manage certain risks than others. But there's also the contracts that assigns or allocates certain risks, liability for risks. So can we just be absolutely crystal clear on what we're trying to achieve in this meeting? So when we're talking about ownership, is it about the former, i.e. best placed party to manage the risk, i.e. risk owner, as we all understand it, or are we talking about allocation of risk and trying to reconcile these risks to the contract, the compensation event clauses in a contract? And they were like, uh, yeah, we're sort of trying to do both, aren't we? And we're getting all mixed up. So I said, right, can I offer my advice? Can we just tackle the first bit? Planning for success. <laughs> yeah, about ownership. Who's gonna, who's best placed to manage the risks? We'll yeah. worry about the contracts later. Let's just agree what the risks are, how big they are, get them in some sort of prioritization so we can focus on the big stuff that we think is going to cause us some concern and make sure that we've got the right risk ownership assigned. Then I'm happy that we're planning for success. We've got the makings of a plan that is going to drive us towards success. <clears throat> success through effective and proactive management of risk. And they're like, yeah, 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 great. Then we'll convene another session where once we've got the risk register, warts and all agreed, and we've got the right ownership so that we know the right people are managing the right risks at the right time, then we'll have another conversation about allocating the risk under the contract, i.e. risk carrier in my terms. We'll have that conversation later because they were using this word owner. By saying it's a client-owned risk, what they were suggesting was, yeah, it's carried by the client under the contract, but it's implicit in our understanding of what owner is that that's more about managing the risk and the client's pushing back saying, no, no, you're best place. That's why we've that's why we've got you as the contractor because you're a better place to manage the risk. And the conversation, they were tying themselves up in knots in these conversations because there was this uh, use and abuse of the word owner. So 
we do need to sort of use different phrases, different terms to distinguish between the two. As I mentioned earlier, I think that's going to be a scenario that a lot of people can um, Probably relate, relate to. to. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is, and I've seen it many, many times when I've been supporting um, um, clients, whether it be pre-contract stuff, you know, bid management support, where they're looking to set the stall out, um, position their offer, be absolutely clear what risk they're willing to accept and what they're not i.e. what they're willing to carry and what they're willing not not willing to carry if they're willing to carry it you know confidence that they've made due allowance in the price for managing the risk and recovering from the risk and i've seen it you know equally used and abused post contracts you know where your clients and and, and delivery organizations are having bum fights yeah. as to what the original intent was or what the initial agreement was in terms of who was doing what and what happens if a particular risk was to materialize, you know, under these risk reduction meetings and arguing over compensation events and so on. So yeah, I've, 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 I've seen lots of, lots of examples of where it can cause confusion and therefore we need to get back to the, the basic principles I've alluded to and, and, and just make that distinguishment and offer clarity. And then you can have really sort of more intelligent, open conversations about the risk management element, the proactive stuff, as well as having an adult intelligent conversation about appropriate and reasonable and intelligent sharing of risk. It's not just about the clarity as well. It's I think the clarity encourages a more prosperous relationship when that just eradicates bickering and just having the stall set out right from the outset. It just it just eradicates that completely, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's probably so. I mean, we've we've mentioned you know the first point I made there in terms of how it's helped me was you know planning for success and planning for recovery and and you know the second point was about this confusion and and use and abuse of the word owner and it and it, and it helps the conversations and clarity. Um, yeah, I think the, the the final point I'd like to make is is what I've sort of just alluded to there in the terms of how it's helped pre and post contract stuff. I've worked with a delivery organization where right from the get go, we had a collaborative approach to risk management where the client was engaged in all of the conversations so that we had the confidence that the risk register was as complete and robust and accurate as we could possibly get it. Leave no stone unturned. Um, you're never going to see all the risks, but if you engage all the right people at the right times in the process, then you've got a better chance of, of of having a more comprehensive and complete understanding of what the risks are that you face going forward, all directly related to what success looks like. And as I mentioned before, you know, a lot of the stuff that can cause projects to fail is not necessarily to do with the contractor's scope. Um, it's the stuff outside of the project, you know, outside project domain stuff that happens in the enterprise in the client organization external parties uk plc the world all that sort of stuff you know can influence how successful a project is delivered you start those sorts of conversations pre-contract and you start to get a, a, a lot more confidence in the risks that you can see your understanding of them how significant they might be where they're coming from their origins yeah, it might not be originating from in, inside the project in, in, you know, from the contractor's organization or their supply chain. 
Um, you start to understand where other stakeholders influence the project. You get a feel for different sources of risk. And that puts a different perspective on things as to how you're going to manage those and how you're going to engage certain stakeholders, how you're going to protect yourself against those risks and so on and so forth. So having that conversation early doors with your client, that open and frank exchange, complete transparency leads to completeness of your risk picture. We used to call it a risk universe. You, know, you can see, you <laughs> yeah. see the full universe of risk that could impact on a project. Um, it's probably called more like taking an enterprise approach to evaluating a project where you're looking at your, your enterprise and your extended enterprise and, and specifically looking for sources of risk that could directly impact delivery of your project. Um, so it's probably more encompassed in, in sort of ERM principles these days. Same sort of considerations, you know, um, think about all that stuff pre-contract. Think about the management, the planning for success first, and then think about the contracts, layering on top of the contracts. And I've worked very closely with delivery organization where we had the client, as a, you know, integral and other stakeholders integral to the, to, the, to the whole elicitation and evaluation process where we were really confident that we had left no stone unturned. The client was really, really confident that that's what we'd achieved to the point where under a normal contract, you'd have these compensation events defined in the contract where under specific conditions, under specific reasons, the contractor is entitled to compensation. All of the risks are the contractors carried by the contractor. We got this risk register that clearly defined and um, anything that we could reasonably foresee as something that could change or cause deviation from our plan going forward. Some of them did reconcile to the compensation events, but a lot of it didn't because we got that confidence and the client had got the confidence in the process we'd followed. They actually changed the contract. They modified the contract and made a reference to the risk register. They said, we trust it that much. We've gone through such a robust process. God, if we've not got, if something happens and we've not got it on the risk register, that's just bad luck. Yeah. Yeah, that's just really bad luck. Gods are against us because we've gone through a really, really good robust process to the point where they incorporated and made direct reference to the risk register as part of a compensation clause. That's our intent. Do what it says on that bit of paper. Yeah, we've planned for success. We're happy. We've got the right ownership. We're doing the, all the right things. Everyone's obligated to do the right things at the right time for the right reasons. If through bad fortune as opposed to bad management, we get bitten, we've all also thought about who would be liable. And, and, and it wasn't about liability. It was more about who is best placed to use a lump of money and a lump of time to recover. That sort of gave us more intelligence around who should be liable for a particular risk. It wasn't about a contractual liability. It was about who's best placed to recover from a risk should it occur. Because that party needs access to that money and time so that they have the autonomy, they have the authority, they have the ability, the agility to be able to respond to that risk quickly yeah. and recover to reduce the delay and disruption to the project. Yeah. The alternative was you just do what it says in the contract and when you hit one of these events, you stop, you raise an early warning and you wait about six to eight weeks for a decision to be made as to how you're going to proceed. It's not good for anybody that. 
So this intelligent application and understanding of planning for success and planning for recovery, clear definition of ownership versus carrier, but the carrier was not defined by the contract. The carrier was defined by the process, the risk management process, which was then reflected in the contract. Yeah. So we got a, a better contract that was there to better facilitate the unexpected in the future. We didn't have bum fights. We'd already agreed. We'd foreseen, reasonably foreseen some of these things that people raise as early warnings. We'd already seen them. Yeah. We'd already agreed on who was going to use a lump of money and lump of time that we'd provided for, whether the client had provided for it or whether the contractor had provided for it. It didn't matter. We knew who needed access to that and who was going to use it wisely and constructively to recover should a risk occur. So again, having a conversation around a compensation event, there was no fights. We'd already agreed all that stuff. Yeah. So it just made it sort of post-contract stuff. Really, really made it a lot more easier in terms of contract administration. So again, this sort of thinking, apply it right from day one. And this is how it's benefited me. No, excellent. Thanks, Sutty. And I really appreciate you giving real life examples as well. I think one of the main points of doing the podcast is to touch on people's real time experience and invaluable first hand experience. I mean, you can't find this stuff in a textbook. It's application, isn't it? Exactly. You know, uh, you, you can you can read stuff in a book, even if this stuff was really, really clearly defined in a book until you actually apply it, then yeah it's just theory exactly yeah, and that's that's exactly why i started this podcast um so yeah just to recap really i think you've made some um some really interesting points in layman's terms from what i've extrapolated extrapolated at least this seems like a case of responsibility risk owner in inverted commas versus accountability risk carrier in inverted commas is that is that a pretty fair conclusion i guess it is yeah i mean the terms you pick up on there, responsibility and accountability. Um, you know, I mentioned before that there's some confusion of, you know, and, and abuse of the, the term risk owner when actually they're talking more about risk carrier. Yeah. I think responsibility and accountability are abused equally in that they're, they're used interchangeably and incorrectly so. And I think that can also cause to problem, cause problems, you know, having, um, having been taught from first principles and, and, and understanding how, obligations of executive directors and corporate governance and effectiveness of internal controls and how risk management dovetails and bolsters that has, has stood me in good stead in understanding the difference between responsibility and accountability. You know, we talk about governance in an organization. The book normally stops with somebody, an individual. Yeah, That's the accountable person. The book goes no further. They're accountable. But what does accountability actually mean? And a lot of people really don't know when they're put on the spot and say, well, what, what does accountability mean? They'll normally reel off some definition of responsibility. Yeah. And then when they give you a response, you say, how does that differ from responsibility then? I like, uh, don't know. <laughs> um, I think accountability, I think of things in very simple terms. What does accountability mean? It's the ability to give an account. Account ability i think it's quite yeah quite self-evident actually when you just think about it yeah very simple terms it's the ability to give an account what does that suggest it just means that somebody needs to verbalize or write down an account they need to tell the story they need to justify what happened and why it happened so they need to be on the ball 
they need to have the finger on the pulse so that yeah. when they are held to account and they are asked to offer an account, why did this succeed or why did it fail? Please give me an account. They are able to offer an account. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they do. Yeah, they're just offering an account. It could be that everybody else is responsible for doing. So accountability and responsibility, I think, are quite fundamentally different. And we need to think about them in different ways. If you think about the accountable person, yeah, they're there. They must have the ability to offer an account. But it's sort of implicit in that, that it doesn't mean that they do everything. They're not responsible for everything. So how do they get to a position where they're able to offer an account? Well, they ask people to take responsibility for certain things. And responsibility is more about an obligation or a duty to to deal with something, to do something. Yeah. They tend to be the doers. Yeah, it's the responsible people that are doing all the stuff that then feeds the accountable person with the narrative yeah. so that they can offer the account. So let's just bring that back to the terms we're talking about, you know, risk ownership. If that's more about doing stuff, then it's more about it is it's more about responsibility. It's the responsible people yeah. for doing stuff. The accountable person, the book stops with them. You could say that they're the ultimate carrier, aren't they? You know, you could say it's no one else. Yeah. It doesn't go any further. If it's not a success, they carry the can. They're the fall guy. They're the person that is really going to be able to account. If it all goes wrong, they're the people that are going to be, you know, perhaps looking for another job. And they can blame the responsible people as much as they want, but you can't devolve accountability. You can just ask people to take responsibility for doing certain things. But it's the culmination of those responsibilities and the outcomes of people discharging their responsibilities that ultimately leads to success and allows that accountable person to give a favourable account as opposed to the 98% of projects yeah. that where accountable people are not giving a favourable account of what's happened. So... It's really important to define clearly what responsibilities are and who is accountable. Yeah. Because if you realize your accountability and what that really means and that you are the ultimate carrier of every risk that happens, forget the contract. Ultimately, the project fails for whatever reason, for whatever fault, doesn't matter. You're the accountable person. Now, what I've seen in most organizations is you'll have a, a single responsible accountable person they'll call them different things sros spas lots of different acronyms about you know person of accountability and it's that's basically the person where the book stops they are the ultimate carrier but what they tend to tend to what tends to happen and what i've witnessed is that they'll ask you know they'll they'll, they'll assign responsibilities to people to do stuff to manage risk to think about the risk and that's it, their job is done. And they don't influence things. They don't get involved in the process heavily. But they're the ultimate accountable person. If you're going to be held to account for something, the success or failure of a project, and you are going to be stood on a pedestal with some quite influential stakeholders, right through to you know the Prime Minister on government projects, trying to offer an account as to why you screwed up, is that not important enough to want to understand that 
you've got the right responsibilities assigned to the right people. Yeah. You've got the right level of ownership of risk. That you've got the right level of protection, the ability to dig yourself out of a hole. How are you going to explain yourself if you're not thinking in those terms? But typically the accountable person, the ultimate carrier of all the risk, doesn't acknowledge that. And therefore I've used it in a way to try and reinforce responsibilities and accountabilities and to offer that clarity and to get people's you know attention. Yeah. Um, because it's very, very confused. And from a risk management perspective, it can confuse matters. Yeah, of course. You know, so this has helped me offer clarity in these types of conversations around responsibility versus accountability. So just another example of, of, of where it's sort of helped me out, I guess. Next steps then, I guess, for, for this phrase, risk carrier, there seems to be a lot of substance to the concept. However, it doesn't seem to be explicitly defined anywhere. Where do you think it might be the best place to actually document this to stimulate improvement for the future? And then secondly, for anybody listening to this who may be unfamiliar with the term, would you encourage them to begin using this term, to refer to it in the client organizations they're working in? Or would you advise waiting until it's well documented in, in one of these potential documents in the future? It's, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I, I think fundamentally it's it's at the core of so many potential problems as to why risk management is not effective, why projects are not effective, why contracts are not excuse, uh, executed effectively, why we don't get the, the sort of the the optimum benefit, the value, you know, if the core of risk management is about adding value, protecting value. If, if we don't think about these basic principles, then I think it's a detriment to, as I say, effective project management, risk management, commercial management, so on and so forth. So having said that, I think it should be documented better. Yeah. Um, the places where I think it, it, it has a place is in any sorts of guides and standards that really help define an appropriate um, fit-for-purpose application of risk management in delivery of projects, programs, portfolios, because typically it's those where they're delivered under a contract. You've got a contractor, a delivery organization that delivers something for the client. And, and as I say, you know, I go right back to where we started the conversation, where, where, you know, what's the origins of risk carrier? It's a commercially contractually motivated term, I think. And all of the problems that that can then cause later on <laughs> to the detriment of effective project management, risk management, and so on. Um, I think it's important that it's captured in those guidance documents and standards that help support um, and, and define what best practice risk management looks like in that P3M space project program portfolio. Just riding off the back of that, then you know, if most projects and programs are delivered under contract, then take the NEC3, and now four suite of contracts that lots of contracting organizations favor yeah lots of clients are using um, it's a good standard form of contracts there's lots and lots of volumes of guidance notes as to how you use those different types of contracts and the options and the clauses and so forth to good effect in delivering projects and programs i think it has a place there you know more clarity over the relationship between the behaviors and the things that a contract drives and how that can influence successful delivery of a project and how that dovetails and influences just effective project management and 
risk management being a core fundamental of effective project management. Um, so I think there's something there to be said in those sorts of guidance documents as to how you go about initiating a proactive approach to risk management that then helps to inform a better, more robust, workable contract. I think it touches on what we mentioned earlier, doesn't it, in terms of it almost reinforces what the NEC3 or NEC suite was brought in to do, is to encourage collaboration and um, and make the relationships more robust. And I think, as we touched on earlier, having that set out from an early point uh, an early point in the project, sorry, just eradicates those bum fights, eradicates the bickering, eradicates all that sort of stuff, and and just strengthens the relationship. If it's if 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 good effective risk management is massively dependent on the human factor, we've got to do everything we can to provide a a, a good positive environment where behaviours and attitudes are correct are right. We yeah. set the right tone right from the get-go because that's just then going to deliver, you know, a, a deliver a, a more favourable environment within which to um, deliver a project and administer a contract. And then just touching on the second part of that question, sorry, so anybody, any risk professionals listen to this or any non-risk professionals who might go back and, and liaise with the risk manager on their particular project or in their organisation, would you encourage the use of this phrase, the risk carrier, or would you just encourage cognizance of this particular concept? Or what would your advice be to anyone listening to this who sort of had a little bit of a light bulb appear above the head and think, God, that is such a good point. Where do I go from here? I'm not necessarily advocating that everybody go and start using the term risk carrier because it does have some connotations. You know, people will read into that term as I did. It's a contractual and commercial thing it's about liability and people don't necessarily like engaging in those types of conversations using those types of words when yeah. you explain it that way so Quite as i say yeah it. you know use the word contingency owner or just have the principle embedded in your brain and get into the mindset of structuring your conversations or your process you know let's deal with this chunk just to be clear what we're talking about here is who's best place to manage it I'm not using any terms, any definitions. I'm just saying we need to plan for success, guys. Yeah. So can we think about this? Who's best place to, to manage the risks, please? Right. Now can we think about, despite all that stuff, who's best place to recover from that situation? Great. I'm not using any terms. I'm not using ownership. I'm not talking about carrier. I'm not talking about contingency. It's just the basic principles of setting your stall out well using risk management constructively, effectively to help project delivery. So um, by all means, yeah, use the terms. But for me, it's about understanding the principle and using that effectively in how you engage with your projects, with your key stakeholders, with your clients, and just having that in the back of your mind to, to, to structure how you implement risk management, how you elicit things how you present information back to inform certain decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, take no. the principles on board, less so about the, the specifics on terminology. Yeah, no, completely agree. I think it almost 
touches back on what we mentioned earlier in regards to the sort of misuse of the term risk owner. Last thing Avoid. we want to advocate is is the misuse of the term risk carrier. As long as you're cognizant of the actual concepts that you've outlined today, then that's the most important thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay, great stuff. So thanks for that, Sutty. Is there anything anything else that you'd like to touch on or do you think we've sort of covered all bases there? No, really? it was really good. It was really good. I mean, uh, you know, as I said, I can probably talk about this for days <laughs> of how it has helped me in, you know, in, in reality. Um, but hopefully it's offered the audience, you know, just some insight into the benefits of this type of thinking. Yeah. Um, uh, and that was what I, I, I wanted to try and try and offer up and also to stimulate some thought around it. You know, if there are people out there that are like, oh, this is, I've been doing this all, you know, all, all my life, all my career. This isn't new. Yeah. Um, be thinking about, well, how have you phrased it? How have you positioned it? Because it'd be really good to open that debate up and to get some feedback from the audience, you know, of how, how, how they've addressed just some of the concerns that I've raised. Completely agree, Sooty. And, and like I say, I think it's been a really, really interesting topic. And I'm really fortunate that you're my mentor, that I have this available whenever I need it, really. <laughs> have this fountain of knowledge that that's available to me whenever I need it. So no, it's been a really good discussion. Thanks, Sooty. So no I think just touching on the um on the mentorship piece, so I think that, that feeds quite nicely to the last um last point really. So as I do with all my guests that come onto the podcast, I've, I think this is a really interesting piece. It is a piece of advice that you would have given yourself at the start of your career that you know now that you didn't know then. And I think it feeds quite nicely into people at the start of their careers who can sort of mm-hmm. touch back on this as well. But but yeah, piece of advice, start of your career that you know now that you didn't know then, fire away. You you know what I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do indeed. <clears throat> yeah, it's find yourself a good mentor. I was very fortunate that just by default, the people that hired me when I started my journey into risk management, they were the only two risk professionals I knew. For, for a number of years until I got some experience under my belt and they just by default, be, they were not just my line managers, but they, they became uh, my mentors as well. And I've sort of I continued that relationship all the way through my career. So it was somebody that, you know, a trusted professional that I could pick up the phone to and have a an open and candid conversation with that I didn't feel stupid. Yeah. You know, I, I yeah. didn't, I wasn't nervous. I, I wasn't embarrassed about saying, I don't know. I could use them as a sounding board um, as I was, you know, developing my own ideas and my own concepts, my own ways of working, you know, finding my feet, just getting that advice um, and just being a, you know, a shoulder to lean on, a sounding board, you know, an ear to listen to what what I had to say with absolutely no direct impact on my day job. You know, yeah. it was, it was, it was, it was all sort of, you know, off the record type stuff, conversations held in confidence. I would definitely advocate that everybody finds somebody that they can trust in that capacity and use them as a, as a, as a mentor, because I think it will help them grow as an individual. It will give them confidence um, if they are, and it doesn't have to be in the same profession either. It's just somebody that. You, you trust and you think are going to add value to your journey great if they're in the profession you know, the, the risk management professional absolutely is a bonus um, but it doesn't have to be but a mentorship is very much about the mentee and less about the mentor so it's about the mentee understanding what's going to add value to me as an individual as a professional yeah and selecting a mentor on that basis 
completely advocate that. I think I'd, I was familiar with the term mentor, but I'd never really investigated or understood what it actually meant. And it's only since obviously you and I have, have, have entered a mentorship that I've realized how beneficial it is. In terms of the opposite, obviously that's me as a mentee. And from a mentor perspective, if anybody's considering doing it or or is approached but doesn't really know much about it, is it something that, you've, that you're glad that you've gone into? Is, it, is there any from a piece of advice for somebody who might be considering that, is, is there any nuggets that you'd offer there? Just be clear on what the mentee wants. So as a mentor, as I say, it's not about me. Um, it's about you as the mentee yeah. leveraging what I can offer. And you might not agree with everything that I say. You know, you've, you've got to make your own mind up. Um, but if you can be absolutely crystal clear with your mentor what it is that you want to get out of that relationship, then the mentor has a you know stands a fighting chance of being able to offer good advice that is directly related to the value you want to get out of that relationship so it just not necessarily has to be a contract or anything like that um but write it down and get that agreement and then you've got that commitment yeah. between both mentor and mentee what the basis of that relationship was all about and the value that you were expecting to get out of it and and continually you know periodically review that Go back to it because you may find actually things have moved on. And whilst you may have a great relationship, personal relationship with that person, you may actually come to realize that actually they're probably not as well placed as you'd have hoped yeah. to get the sort of value that you, you need for as a professional. So you might want to go and then look for a different mentor. And as you grow and evolve throughout your career, that's perfectly natural. But unless you've got it written down, you don't really know what the starting blocks were, what the intent was at the start of the relationship, and it all can become a little bit clouded. So be very, very clear on what the objectives are and the value that you want to get out of it um, for, for, for the benefit of the mentee and the mentor. Amazing. Well, thanks so much, Sooty. I've really enjoyed that, and I'm, I'm certain that everybody listening will have done as well. And on that note, if anybody wants to get in touch with you to discuss anything to do with the whole risk carrier piece or or just anything at all, really, in terms of risk management or mentorship or anything like that, um, as I'm sure there will be people who want to get in touch, what would be the best way for them to reach out? Um, first and foremost, I'd say LinkedIn. So you'll find me on there, Paul Sutcliffe. <coughs> Alternatively, um, you'll find me on the Optimize website, optimize-risk.co.uk. We have a contact page on the on the website. There's also on that contact page, um, we've got a facility to book a risk surgery. We do indeed. So if you want to book half hour with me, go onto the website, navigate to the contact page, and there'll be a little drop down which will say risk surgery, and you can choose a time that suits you. Completely you free book, of charge. Completely free of charge. Book some time with me. And this is it. We're, we're, we're very happy to do this type of thing because changing the industry, supporting development of the next generation of risk professionals, I can't take it to my grave what's in my head. And the best way for us to use that to good effect and to offer value back to the profession and the industry and it is to embody that that knowledge that experience that understanding in in that next generation so we're more than happy to impart what we can to help people out i completely agree yeah just on the risk surgery so you can um if you want to if you'd like to speak to sooty you can speak to obviously select to speak to sooty also the other optimized partners matt danny and um 
and Paul Disley and also myself as well. Like I said, I've only been in the profession for for a year or so, but I feel like I've I've picked up on some um, on some really interesting um, concepts and, and key fundamentals. And I guess from my perspective, it would probably be aimed a little bit more towards people who might just be considering a move into risk or they might have just graduated from uni and, and looking for some advice. Even if you want some advice on how to set up a podcast, <laughs> um, just give me a hey, shout. Don't give the secrets away, pal. <laughs> um, but no. As I mentioned, we're all more than happy to to help out. But Sutty, thanks so much for coming on. I'm sure everybody's uh, fascinated by this discussion. I know I certainly am. And um, and yeah, really looking forward to the next one. Cheers, mate. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode of Riskologists, be sure to follow Optimize on all of our social media channels where you can subscribe to this podcast and be notified of every episode so you don't miss a thing. Please like, share and leave reviews to help support us and increase our reach within the wider risk community. And join us next time, where we'll be chatting with another leading figure in the world of risk. Until then, thanks a lot for listening and take it easy.